Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a still rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Richard Glasson. Richard is the CEO of Hogarth Worldwide, the world leader in creative production. Richard, welcome to the programme and thank you ever so much for joining us on the air today. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Richard, of course, uh, again for joining us. And the purpose of this discussion really is to establish your take on leadership as a whole. So if we dive straight in and just look at that word leader in isolation for a moment, what does that word actually mean to you? Uh, Well, I think the circumstances we're living through at the moment have probably thrown into um, stark relief um, everyone's uh, thinking about what it is to be a leader because Uh, I guess traditionally you might think, certainly in the business context, about being a leader as being um, somebody who is responsible for the business strategy, for the success of the business, for taking decisions in the interest of the business. But but obviously, and and particularly for a company like ours, a business is um, as good as the people who are in that business and and as successful as um, those people enable it to be. And, um, And so as we live through some very strange times, I think, the role of leader, um, there's, a, there's a real spotlight being shone on um, uh, leadership of people, of what the vision is to support the people in the company, to be very visible um, and to set an example that people can um, hopefully follow or, or, or appreciate. But most importantly, I think, to provide that sense of um, clarity um, and direction, because I think everyone is looking for that at the moment. So um, being a leader to me is always about um, uh, building very strong teams, being surrounded by people who can work together in the most effective way, uh, but also about having a vision and setting a direction. And I think that's never more important than, than it is at the moment. Mm, it's hugely important. You're absolutely right there. And what's also important for leaders to provide to those around them at this point in time is reassurance. And I think there's been a lot of pressure on leaders to keep the communication channels open and do that. And it has been quite difficult because even though, of course, we are seeing a little bit more of a clearer route forward now from the government guideline point of view, there's still a little bit of a lack of clarity around certain issues and there's still a great deal of uncertainty about the future. So sometimes those business leaders who need to, of course, be providing that reassurance don't necessarily know all the more than the people around them and that can pose its own set of challenges can't it uh, it does i but but i think it also creates an opportunity in a sense because uh you know i think good communication isn't um just one way good communication does involve um a, a dialogue and being able to admit or acknowledge at the moment that um, why we're taking the decisions that we're taking and what what things we're taking into account in order to inform those decisions, I, I think gives people, you know, if you like, a degree of confidence that they understand what is happening and why things are happening as they are. Because we have to say we don't, you know, that we're moving into the unknown. There's a lot that we don't know at the moment. And if you look at, you know, the country leadership, then... I I know that people are looking for certainty and I know that people are looking for absolute clarity, but that's incredibly hard to provide in the context of a pandemic um, of a disease, which we simply don't know how it plays out. We simply don't know what some of the the next um, uh, events or circumstances are going to be. So, so I think, you know, the approach that we've taken at Hogarth is, is to have very regular communication, very open communication 
and to be very open about what is uh, informing our decision-making as well as what those decisions are. Because I think, as you say, everyone's got access to pretty much the same information. And mm. so, and I, and I think people you know, don't necessarily look to leaders to have all of the answers, but they look to them to take decisions that are rational or sensible or, um, or if you like, the right decisions based on the information that's available. And we often hear it said as well that in times of adversity, it really does bring out the best and sometimes the uh, the worst um, in people. And there have been some superb stories during this time of people who've really gone above and beyond, whether they've had to adapt to remote working or whether they've had to continue working on site. Um, how has it been at Hogarth um, in that respect? Have you been inspired by the way that um, your employees have responded and have they really taken to this well, would you say? It's been extraordinary. It's been absolutely extraordinary. I've, I've always known that we've had um, an incredible team, but we moved, you know, something under 5,000 people to home working over the course of a weekend with no interruption to our business. And so we got an incredible tech team who, um, who, who were able to get everybody working effectively from home. We've got a really strong, um, uh, infrastructure behind the business. We've always been uh, a single global community. Um, the, the business itself is only about 12 years old, and so we've grown up in, in a period where we can be uh, super connected around the world and see ourselves not as a bunch of individual offices, but as a single team of people. And that's just come absolutely to fruition over this period. So we haven't missed a beat. People have gone above and beyond what could possibly be expected of them. Nobody at any stage has complained about any of the um, challenges about doing this work. And um, and no, I've been I've been blown away by the team, and I think uh, you know the funny thing is as we go through this period of physical separation, um, in in in, a, in an emotional sense, I think people feel much more close to their colleagues than perhaps they did before. Mm. And has it been quite challenging um, actually maintaining that? leadership from afar if you will and keeping the communication channels open because it is it is not as straightforward as of course meeting people in a common office space and i think we have taken that human contact for granted before now but in many ways i mean it's like as you say this period has still brought us all closer together from a distance and there's a lot to be said for that well i think actually for for, certainly for myself and probably for a lot of people in the company it's actually widened the circle of people that we're in regular contact with because when you are, it's easy to get lazy. If I, if I'm, you know, I tend to divide my time between London and New York primarily, and so the people in the London office and the New York office are the people that I know the best and I spend the most time with, and would probably typically be my, you know, the people that I would um, go to and have the most conversations with. But given that we don't have that um, that physical proximity now. It, it sort of um, it lifts the uh, boundaries. It lifts the um, the restrictions on that. And so, I I personally found communicating across the company to be easier because everybody is used to the fact that um, you're not just talking to the people who happen to be close to you. You're talking to whoever the right person is in the organisation. And so, we're putting together some very effective teams around new business processes or you know, client work or um, other wider initiatives in the business where. We're not being um, hamstrung by the people that happen to be in a given location. So, um, and you know, with the tools that we have available to us now, I think it's very easy to communicate very widely. And uh, I get I get my analytics through every week, and every week it goes up the amount of people that uh, I'm collaborating with. So, so I've, I've found it to be quite a positive thing in that sense. 
Mm, there are certainly going to be uh, positives to uh, to take uh, from this uh, for sure, even though it has been a tragic time because that experience of business uh, management through crisis, um, I suppose, um, is, is going to be massive for uh, leaders, isn't it? Because suffering sort of setbacks and learning from them is one of the key ways in which we develop, not just as leaders, but also as um, employees as well. And that experience of going beyond, going above and beyond, pushing the boundaries, going beyond our comfort zones, that's really going to prove beneficial for the future in a certain way. I think that's true. Um, and, you know, you touch on the point that it, it is, um, uh, it's hard to talk about positives at the, at the current point in time because, as you would expect with the amount of people we have in the organisation, we're aware of people, you know, we've had our own people who are, who've been getting ill, we've had um, people who tragically lost members of their family and so it, it's, you know, the context is extremely hard but it does, it does, you know, force us all or encourage us all to think about, um, you know, what it is that we want to be doing at, at work and how we want to be successful and I think that you know, as you say, there is this opportunity now to to really think in different ways about um, uh, what what we've learned over this period. I, I would say that you know there will be some fairly fundamental medium to long term changes in in the way people work. Um, I think that learning through crisis is a valuable lesson. The fact that there's also this um, it's a community crisis. It's a crisis that's affecting the whole world. It's a, um, so it's a collective crisis. It means that some of that, um, you know, some of that concern that might come about um, because you know we're, we're always in a competitive world. You're always looking at what other companies are doing and whether you're doing the right thing and whether we're gaining market share. But at the moment, what we're seeing is a whole bunch of companies um, all reacting to the same set of circumstances, and so. I think that's brought out the best of people, both internally and, and across the industry. And I, you know, and I, and I think that again, that, that spirit of working together is going to be something which we'll all remember and we'll all take forward as we move into hopefully a post-COVID world. And as we do begin to move into that uh, post-COVID world, um, if we think about that period just for a moment, Richard, what do you hope that yourself, Hogarth Worldwide, will achieve in that time as we move through COVID, but also for the other side um, when we get through this pandemic eventually? What are we going to um, hopefully uh, see in the future from there? Well, I think I could answer that on a a human level and a business level. On a human level, I think a lot of us have spent time focusing on you know, what's important to us. I've been, I've never been busier and a, a whole bunch of people in the company have never been busier. We're all working extremely hard. But working from home, I'm seeing a lot more of my family. I'm obviously not travelling at the moment. Normally I'd spend more than half my time um, in different parts of the world and, you know, miss large parts of, uh, of seeing my wife and kids. And and, um, and so I think on a human level, we're all going to, you know, we, I think we've learned that we miss human contact in a in a work environment. I think we've learned that we uh, we enjoy being around our families, and so I think there's I think there's there's that aspect to it. From a business point of view, I think that this will act as a catalyst for innovation. So everybody will think about how they can be ready for the next time this happens, or maybe this you know this whole experience is going to be something that we have to live with longer term, and so you know. You know, we've had a focus, as have many people, on how do we make our business more sustainable. How do we, how do we think about, um, you know, whether we need to get on a plane every single time um, in our business and advertising, expensive shoots with people flying in all around the world to um, to create films, and and actually, there's a lot of technology that can make some of that 
travel and some of that upheaval redundant. And so clients who've been used to a traditional way of working, we believe that this is going to drive them towards becoming early adopters of new technologies and different ways of working and more open to experimentation and more willing to try different ways of doing things. So my, my belief is that everything that we've learned through this period is going to act as I say, as a catalyst to innovation, which uh, must be a positive thing. Absolutely right. There are some going to be some real positives uh, that come out of this difficult uh, period for sure, as you've outlined there, Richard. And I think given how informative it's actually been having you on the programme with us today, I think it would be great if in the next year when we start to see hopefully some of those hopes borne out, we could catch up and have you back on the programme just to discuss what the new normal is looking like and whether we are really seeing some of those positive changes as we've just discussed. I'd love to do that. Thank you. Yeah. I think it would be fantastic from a listener's perspective, certainly, Richard. And I have to say, I mean, it's been a real pleasure having you on uh, today's uh, programme for sure, but also, as I say, a really informative um, experience as well. So thank you once again for taking the time to join us. And do take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the meantime. Thank you, Scott. Very good talking to you. Likewise. That was Richard Glasson, the CEO of Hogarth Worldwide. And coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 Football World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional football career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham, United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition after his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking with Sir Jeff and that's coming up next. Uh, We're now joined uh, though by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, Thank you very much for coming on today. uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me, realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, <laughs> one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and a manager over many, many, many years. 
he um, he's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years. I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you you just think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and uh, a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there... It's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And, of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peters? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with the, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Noor. Although he was only uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy in the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to, to be involved in my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, oh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time, maybe overly strict, but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. 
But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn song, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned, and I've taken it on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless of that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think, uh, a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could... Uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing, and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team. But in a couple of friendly games, more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway, I think in Denmark, mm. I didn't. I played two of the four games, and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England. And he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger so mm. I, I had an impact of thinking I. At that stage, I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Lee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, well, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be and I'd be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back, out, out. So I never really felt. People talk about pressure a lot, and it's there. And people, players talk about. People talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessarily feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out. The squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Al showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, 
Uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we had some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows, in fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. There's too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked: Did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course, I jokingly say, "Yes, I was just about to to shoot to score the goal, and I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch.' So that uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows." <laughs> I joke and make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay. So I was uh, doing a, a at a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about twenty minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden I heard a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> What a question. What a question. Uh, I think that would be definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. uh, Well, uh, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with (laughs) things like that. I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did uh, um, did make it laugh that day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, (laughs) But there would have become a point, though, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened, when you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by, by quick, one way or the other, people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. It's a new a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps 
uh, there are there are people that pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke, and of course in, uh, England fans who, um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest that I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a uh, helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a, in a natural leader? Um. Well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck that's absolutely leadership he'd be the best example of course in in football terms today Uh, easily easily and of course but going back not that long ago Alex Ferguson who's just absolutely Mm. you've got to take him as the first example but Klopp's only done this over a period of time a short period of time but if you look at the 25 26 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone how they've they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think? Could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they. Uh, Ron Green was yeah. The answer, straightforward answer, is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back. Uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of 
not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. Yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding and, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody, and I'm going back from an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard-nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't – when, when you put those, those questions and how you categorize those, I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big Absolutely. a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great players. We have some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word, the word is team. the word is t- the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes, you know, together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness dedication, Dedication to the job, um, thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not. Uh, they will not switch off for for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's you completely focus. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over this, go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, 
its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.